day. They're horrifying, right? Um, I can smell that now, just think talking about it here. I can smell that smell, and I can hear the sound of a beer can opening. That's what would wake me up in the morning, um, that, that crack, you know? And uh, my dad, I, I literally never saw him without a drink in his hand. Um, like, driving, everything. Like, it was just like, it, it was just how he functioned, how he lived, was he needed this alcohol to help him. Um, so he left when I was six years old, and he was a serial adulterer, and just, it was just a bad, a bad situation all around. Um, my grandmother stepped into my life. She had, like, always been a part. She lived um, a block away from me. You know, you can, if I stepped out of my house looking this way, then her house was, like, right to the left, um, just to the left. And I spent the majority of my time with her. Um, my mom really struggled, you know. She was young when all of this happened. She was like late 20s or so. Um, and when I was a kid, it seemed like she was so old. But then, like, as I got into my 20s and now I'm in my 30s, I think, man, that's a, a heavy burden for a young woman to bear, you know. Um, so my grandmother stepped into my life, and she passed away, though, when I was 12. And that um, set me on this journey of um, trying to figure out how to navigate life, you know because this one anchor that I'd had, my grandmother was now gone. And um, I started abusing drugs then, and that continued for decades, right? This uh, long um, struggle with drugs and alcohol. And I'm getting to the point here, right? Um, So I'm trying to build a a case of how this book makes sense of my experiences and how I think it can make sense of some of the experiences you may have had. Um, Hopefully you haven't had these sorts of experiences, but if you have... Uh, my mom married another guy uh, after my grandmother died. He was also abusive, not in the same way as my, as my father was, um, but in a different way. And he was a, uh, a deacon at a church, right, at a, a Southern Baptist church. And um, when I went and talked to the elders of the church and the pastor of the church about my stepdad, uh, what they told me was I should be more submissive, that the problem, the reason he's abusive is, is me and my mom. Like, he needed to bring us in line, right? And so I looked for help from the people that I thought could help me, you know, the leadership of this church, and, and instead of offering help, they just hit me over the head with the Bible, right? Um, and so I left and ended up moving in with my dad when I was uh, late in high school. And, um, and then I went to college and lived with uh, friends after that and friends of parents and just kind of bumbled around until uh, moving to Kansas City. This book, though, so I became a Christian after all of this when I was in, just before I went to college. And so I had this, like, history of, you know, my grandmother had been a Christian. Um, My dad was obviously not. My stepdad claimed to be, but he was abusive. And so, like, I had this, like, real deep-seated fear, and still do often, of, people in authority, of people who say they're Christians, of people who are supposed to protect you and then don't, right? Um, and so when I did become a Christian, I, I had a, a struggle with how do you be a Christian? Like if, if how, how is a person a Christian if this is what a Christian looks like, right? If a Christian is someone who, um, you know, punches holes in doors and, and preaches the gospel, like, how, how does that fit, right? 
And the book of Ecclesiastes helped me to make sense of that, okay? Helped me to make sense of the things I'd experienced because I found in this book, finally, someone who said, that's not how it's supposed to be. He said things like, sometimes the righteous get the rewards of the wicked and sometimes the wicked get the rewards of the righteous. And that is not fair. He said, sometimes you die, people die young, and that is not how it's supposed to be. And so you can imagine, like, go back to, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old me with, like, a totally scrambled brain and really unable to process um, the feelings and emotions I had. And finally, coming to the Bible and saying, okay, here is somebody who gets it, right? Here is someone who says, you're right, Russ. That's not how it's supposed to be. Your grandmother... A godly woman is not supposed to die when she's 60, right? Your dad, the abusive alcoholic guy, is not supposed to live longer than her. You're not supposed to, deacons aren't supposed to abuse their families, right? And so finally, in the book of Ecclesiastes, I found this voice who said, that's not how it's supposed to be, right? And that is how this book changed my life, right? And understanding it rightly gave me some tools uh, and some concepts and some, like a, a framework for walking with God through difficult situations, through handling um, cognitive dissonance, if you will. So, that's why I think we should read this book. That's why I think it should be, it's helpful and significant. And hopefully you haven't, hopefully you haven't struggled with these questions, but I can guarantee you, you know someone who has, right? And I think that this book uh, can help us with that. Okay, so back to the point. We're going to talk today about the creation or the Genesis framework of Ecclesiastes and then the um, meaning of this word vanity or meaningless or hevel, okay? Those are the two main points that we're going to cover uh, because I think they can help us make sense of the book and therefore make sense of how it applies to our own lives, all right? So I'm going to start with the Genesis framework. And you guys feel free to like stop me, raise your hand, ask questions, shout out anything um, along, along the way uh, because I want you to understand, all right? So first we have a video on what is an illusion because Gen Ecclesiastes uses the book of Genesis repeatedly, all right? And he, does it, he doesn't say, by the way, Moses said X, Y, Z in, in Genesis 12, 11. He doesn't say that. He doesn't uh, have footnotes. He doesn't have in-text citations. He doesn't even use the name Moses or the word Genesis. He does it a different way. Um, and so I want to watch this video on illusion before we talk about how that helps us understand what's going on with Ecclesiastes. And I, as I look, so I look for like lots of videos on how to explain illusion um, and this is the one I like, but uh, it might not fit exactly this audience, um, but I think that it will be helpful anyway. All right, Jake, you want to?
Okay, so illusions, right? Um, it's something that we engage in regularly. When I teach this in class, I typically use, um, I love hip-hop music, and so there's like a, a Jay-Z is really good at illusions. Um, and pretty much any music that you listen to, you have to have a cultural framework sometimes to understand what the writer of the song is doing often, especially like with, with Jay-Z, if you guys, has anyone ever listened to Jay-Z? Thank you. Yes, I got two hands here. All right. Uh, for the two of you, you know what I'm talking about, right? He'll, he says things um, that you may not exactly catch, but like in, in this video that they just showed, right, when um, the boy and the girl were, um, had the uh, piece of spaghetti, what was that alluding to? Lady and the Tramp, exactly. You know that. Like, no one has to tell you. You know it's talking about Lady and the Tramp just from that piece of spaghetti. Now, if you lived in, gosh, I don't know, somewhere, if you'd never seen Lady and the Tramp, and you lived in a, not, not only if you'd never seen the movie, but if you lived in a culture that didn't have that story at all, and you saw that image, you would, not, you would have no idea what they, were to, what they were doing, or you would think they were, just talk, they were just eating a piece of spaghetti. You wouldn't import all of that meaning from Lady and the Tramp, right? And so the reason this is significant is because when the, when, um, the author of Ecclesiastes, we'll call him Kohelet, um, that's was the, the name in Hebrew, when he wrote this book of Ecclesiastes, he's working within a particular cultural framework, okay? So this dude or woman, this man or woman, um, is seeped in the biblical text in a way that many of us are not, that I would say none of us are, uh, because it, there was no... There was no music, or there was music. There was no, uh, what do kids listen to these days? C- e- not CDs. Uh, there were no streaming things. Uh, <laughs> if you wanted music, you had to like get out your zatar or something and around the campfire. Um, the cultural language in which Ecclesiastes was written is the Old Testament, okay? And so if we're going to understand what he's talking about, just like in the same way, if you see that reference to if you see the two people um, eating spaghetti, you immediately think of Lady and the Tramp. It's because of your cultural context. What we need to do to understand what's going on in Ecclesiastes is get into the culture, right, and figure out how in the world is he alluding to things. Because if we don't understand the, the clues he's dropping, the, the little breadcrumbs, which is a reference to what? Hansel and Gretel, right. If we don't understand the little breadcrumbs that he's leaving along the way, we're, we're going to miss what he's doing, what he's talking about in this book, okay? So I want to introduce some of those breadcrumbs in showing that the author of Ecclesiastes is using Genesis. That is the framework that we need to think of when we read this book. That We need to be thinking about creation, the Garden of Eden, and the fall and Cain and Abel. That is what... Ecclesiastes is he's using this book as a way to discuss life before the fall and after the fall and then how in the world we we deal with how do we process how do we live out life after the fall okay so let's look at some passages here um they're um in Ecclesiastes 2 4 through 6 I'm just going to read these I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. 
I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born into my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the light of the sons of men. What, looking back at the very, part of the very first part of this, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. What does that make you guys think of? Garden. Yeah, Asher. Oh, your mom made you put your hand down. Never mind. <laughs> the Garden of Eden, right? This is the, and the language, the specific language that the author of, is, of Ecclesiastes is using. He's using the exact phrasing that we find in Genesis 2. I'm going to read 2, 2 through 14 in Genesis. On the seventh day, God finished his work from that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work. And it goes on, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no human to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the Garden of Eden to water the garden. And it goes on from there. So, when we just read Ecclesiastes and this um, account that the author makes, or the author retells us, of building this garden, we could just kind of read that and move on, right? And say, okay, yeah, he's a king, right? He's taking on this royal persona, he's a king, and he's building this fantastic garden. But, if we're... If, if we have the cultural um, context like we have with Lady and the Tramp and Hansel and Gretel, if we have that embedded in our minds, when we read things like a tree with every kind of fruit on it, a water that comes up to form little pools and irrigate the land, you know, and when we hear that he planted when we hear that he built like these are all words that are appearing in both passages right he's repeating intentionally repeating the same language that we find in the book of genesis because and the reason i'm going through these is just to kind of give us a framework for saying okay the author is alluding to genesis and in the same way that we would pick up on lady and the tramp if we were ancient israelites we would pick up on this and it helps us to understand the whole of the book. Okay, the second one I want to look at is in Ecclesiastes three, nineteen through 21. 
For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And now let's look at 12.7 in Ecclesiastes. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Now, what does that make you guys think of? That should be an easy one. Creation, yeah. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I mean, that's, you know, the... Uh, um, a common, it's like the book of the book of common prayer, um, Genesis three nineteen. By the sweat, and this is the curse, right? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, using dust, dust, and return. These are two like really important words in both passages. And he's saying, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, look. God made humans, God made animals, they're both going to die. We don't really know if one goes up and one goes down. But uh, Ecclesiastes does actually know. He's using a rhetorical question. Um, he knows that we go up and, you know, there is a, a difference. Um, but he's using this language from Genesis saying, you're from dust and to dust you're going to return, right? So he is, again, using coded language or a, a reference that he's just dropping there. He's not saying, like, Make sure you read the book of Genesis. He's using language that would make you think of the book of Genesis. Just like in the same way, when you see the spaghetti on the screen, the two people with spaghetti between them, you don't like go back to, um, you don't, you're not like, oh, okay, I need to go back and like make sure to take notes on Lady and the Tramp, right? You automatically, this image is thrust into your mind. On, like it has to be. Like you don't have any control over it. If you know Lady and the Tramp and you see that, that's what you think of. And that's what Ecclesiastes is doing here. Is he's saying, remember, the book of Genesis. He's placing these images and these symbols into his readers' minds because that is the parameters or the framework that he's using to discuss the things that he thinks are important, which is like the verse-by-verse -verse exposition Will will be doing. Okay. The third thing I want to look at is the, the quest for the Garden of Eden. And we're going to talk about this in more detail next week because it's a really important part of what Ecclesiastes is doing, okay? But I'm going to read just a couple of passages. Uh, there's like six of them. I'm going to read a couple of them and then come, we'll come back to them next week um, in more detail. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is hevel or vanity and a striving after win. Okay, let's look at 3.10. Actually, let's do not that one. Let's look at 518. Behold, what I have seen to be 
good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Okay? Um, let's look at 9, 7 through 10. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine or grape juice, since we're a Southern Baptist church, with a merry heart, for God has given, God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your hevel or life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So there's six of these passages called the carpe diem or uh, seize the day or enjoy passages. That's just three of them. And in these passages, the author of Ecclesiastes presents a um, what uh, this another author, Craig Bartholomew, this guy I really liked to read, he calls it a uh, Edenic um, vision for life where he points out four things that humans should enjoy. And remember, we're like, all of this will make sense later, hopefully. He points out four things that humans are to enjoy. Do you guys remember what they are? Work? What? Your wife? Yeah? Your spouse? Grape juice? Wine? Wine slash grape juice. What's the last one? Food. Right. Okay. So there's these four fundamental aspects of life that the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about all of these terrible things that happen throughout the book. He's going to say just bad stuff happens. But in six different places he says, look, God has given you food, a wife, drink, and, and work. And these are the exact same things. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, that is exactly what God gave them in the Garden. He gave them each other. He gave them food, drink, and work, right? And those are the things that the humans were created to do. They were created to live in a relationship, to enjoy company, to enjoy good food, to work, right? And so Ecclesiastes is, is dropping these hints throughout the book using, actually, like, so I have this big chart with like all of the Hebrew words and like, uh, you know, X's in the spots where they appear in Genesis and then Ecclesiastes. And so anyway, I should have put that up here, but it would be very impressive, trust me. Um, uh, but he uses this vocabulary that is taken straight out of the pages of Genesis to say, look, life is hard and bad and rough and things don't go the way they're supposed to go. Sometimes your dad's an alcoholic. Sometimes your grandmother dies. Sometimes your stepdad is an abusive deacon at a church. But food, a spouse, work, and wine. God has given us these things to enjoy, right? And then we'll learn throughout the book, he says, if, if God gives you these things, no matter all this other stuff, all these other bad things that happen, hold on to these gifts, it's a vision of life before the fall. And he's saying, look. So the author uses all of these allusions to the book of Genesis to show us 
to give us the right context or cultural framework to understand what he's talking about, okay? You guys have any questions yet? Okay, last thing. Abel, or Hevel, sorry. This word Hevel, I I mentioned that earlier, like in the um, very front of the book, very start of the book, Ecclesiastes 1-2, if you guys have heard anything about the book, you've heard this, I'm sure. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Okay, that word vanity, it appears 38 times in the book. It appears like 50, I want to say 58, but I could be wrong, like 58 some odd times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So the vast majority of the occurrences of this word are in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the way we understand that word has a significant impact on the way we understand the whole book, right? Because if we understand it as a negative term, like meaningless or pointless or vain, then that is going to impact how we understand the rest of the whole book, right? And now, like, I'm not one of those guys, like, I've taught Hebrew for, like, 10 years, and I tell my students, if you ever, if I ever go to a church and I hear you say, the original Hebrew says blah, 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 then I will... Like, I, don't, I, I won't say what I say, like, since this is being taped. But, um, but I tell them not to do that because it's obnoxious and all of that. But I'm going to do it. And in this case, like, this word has a very broad range of meaning in Hebrew. And, like, what has happened throughout the, the um, process is it's become a narrow, we've given it, we've given it, we've translated it with a word with a narrow range of meaning. All right, so, for example... Let's think about the word, let's think about bread. I want you guys to get bread in your minds. What are some various types of bread? Jake, can you like write those up there while people, when we do it? Oh yeah, and Jake is a bread making master, actually. So he, Croissant. Okay, good. Croissant. Craig, what are you going to say? Oh. Yeah. Sourdough. Rye. Croissant. Huh? Naan. Yeah, good. Whole grain. Tortilla. What? Pumpernickel? Naan. Pumpernickel. Yeah. Naan is right. Uh, donuts. Jalapeno bread. Okay, fair. What? What? <laughs> Loaf. Unleavened bread. Light bread. Brie, French bread. Gluten free. Did you say money? Money, yes, good, very good, yeah. Money. Right? You get that bread, you know? Yeah, I know. Okay, so, yeah, but here, all right, our, what? Yeah, so, okay, so all of those things are bread, right? If you say bread, bread is the big umbrella term that can have tons of different meanings. But is, is our non-bread and sourdough bread the same thing? No, but they are both bread, right? Okay. So that is what's happened with, the, with this term hevel, okay, in Ecclesiastes, this word that's translated vanity. Is you, 
In Hebrew, it has a really broad range of meaning, like bread. It's this huge umbrella term, okay? That has, that, it can mean transient, um, like fleeting. It can mean transitory. It can mean vapor, smoke, breath. It can refer to an idol. It can also mean meaningless. It can mean pointless. It can mean um, vanity, not in the sense of you're so vain, but vanity in the sense of like it doesn't matter. It's, so it has a really broad range of meaning. So, but the problem is like if we say a breath, a breath of air is fleeting, but is it pointless? No, we die without it, right? So it can be, and so the problem comes when in English we have a word like meaningless or pointless or vanity to translate another word with a really broad range of meaning, right? It would be like if we were trying to communicate, the, if we were using the word bread, you can go to cultures all around the world, like someone said naan bread, someone said French bread, um, donuts was up there, tortilla, I think you said tortilla. You can, bread refers to different things in different cultures, right? When you say um, like a tortilla is like just your common bread in like Mexico, I would think. Um, but non bread is your common bread in the Middle East or in India. It's not, the, but white bread is like your common bread in America. But they're all types of bread. But if you said, if you translated the word non with like sliced white bread, people in India would not know what you're talking about, right? Because it's different. So that's what's happened in the book of Ecclesiastes is we've taken this word bread with a broad range of meaning and we've translated it with only one sense of its meaning, vanity. See, the problem there is it, it limits our understanding of what the author is doing, okay? And I promise this is going to help make sense of the book, okay? And keep in mind that the author of Ecclesiastes Okay, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to go fast. The author of Ecclesiastes has dropped little crumbs along the way, right? The Garden of Eden, he's told us about life before Eden. He's told us about building this garden in the same way that God built this garden, right? He's giving, he's giving us clues to try to un- help us understand what he's talking about in this book. Life before the fall. He's giving us a Genesis context. Now, the other place where this word hevel, that's what it is in Hebrew, appears, is in the Cain and Abel narrative. It's the same word used for the Abel, the, the uh, man in the narrative, Abel. Okay, exact same word, same spelling, everything in Hebrew. And Abel is this embodiment of this word hevel, right? He died young, his life was transitory, it was brief. All of these things happened to him. This is why we named our son Abel, actually. Um, this is what my, I wrote my dissertation on this word, and we named, I wanted to name our first son Abel, and Britt would not let me, uh, but she acquiesced the second time. Um, so Abel. It's the same term in Hebrew. Hevel, Abel, Abel, Hevel. Okay? And Abel is the first example of this, of the breakdown of the way things should happen, right? So in when we read the Bible and we read the Abraham, read about Abraham and the, the law, you know, we've just been through Exodus. God says, look, he sets out these parameters. If you obey me, if you follow me and live in right relationship with me, you can expect land 
descendants and wealth. Essentially, that's what he tells Abraham. Those are the three components, right? If you disobey me, bad things will happen, right? All of the curses. You will get kicked out of the land. You will not have children. You will have um, plague and pestilence and you'll be poor and you'll die young, right? If you do obey, you'll live a long time. You'll have a good life. You'll have thing, good things will happen to you, right? That's what we get in essentially in Deuteronomy and the Abraham narratives, okay? But right there, and that's what, you know, the book of Job is, is, is wrestling with this issue. If someone follows God, why are all these bad things happening? And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with, and it's using this word that references to Genesis and this word Abel to do it. Because Abel, in, the, in Genesis 4, is the first instance of things not going the way they should, right? So you have in um, Ecclesiastes 8, I didn't write it down. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, let me see if I can find it real fast. 8.14, I did write it down. There is a vanity or able hevel that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This is exactly what happens in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, as you guys know, offers a sacrifice that the Lord does not regard. He says that Cain's, the Lord did not have regard for Cain's sacrifice because the Bible says that Abel offered his best, the first fruit, the very best he could offer, he gave to God. And Cain brought some of his produce, it says. Just some of it. He just brought some stuff. He just like scooped it up, said, here you go, God. Abel, Cain gets upset about the rejection and God pleads with him like, Cain, I will accept you if you just do what's right. And he rejects God again and he goes out and he murders his brother in the field, right? And the Lord comes and confronts Cain about this and then Cain pleads with the Lord and says like, look, everybody's going to be really mean to me if you, you know, cast me out. And so the Lord puts a mark of protection on Cain. It sends him away. Cain, if we keep reading, Cain goes on to have lots and lots of children. He founds a city. He has this long legacy. Now, we remember him like as the guy who killed Abel. But like in his lifetime, he was allowed to have a long life and have lots of descendants. He had all the markers of God's blessing, right? He even had a mark of protection that God said, okay, I'll give you this mark to make sure nobody harms you. Abel was the righteous one. He dies young, childless. Doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't have descendants. He doesn't accumulate wealth. He doesn't have this long, godly life. He dies, right? It's it. It's over for him. Cain gets the rewards of the righteous. Abel gets the rewards of the wicked, right? So in this story, things are flipped upside down. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is using this Abel, that's the same, the word, Abel, Abel, 38 times. This is like Abel, Abel, Abel. This is Abel, this is Abel, this is Abel. That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. And he's naming these situations where stuff is flipped the wrong way. Where there's a situation that happens and it's not the way it's supposed to be. You expect in a rightly ordered world, in, in a world where everything is as it should be, if you do X, you can expect Y. But that is not always the way it happens, right? We know that. 
We absolutely know that. And that is why Ecclesiastes is so significant, I think, for today. Because it uses this story of Cain and Abel, this first instance, right there at the beginning of the Bible, where stuff gets flipped upside down. And he says, look, this is the way things are. And by the way, what's like the ultimate example of things flipped upside down? Jesus, right? The cross. Like the one dude who never did anything wrong gets murdered on a wooden stake. That is the ultimate example of this ableness of life, this upside down nature of the world we live in. And so the author of Ecclesiastes 38 different times uses this word to say things are messed up, right? But the way forward, and I'll just, I'll end here, but we'll talk about it next week too. So this whole book is about saying, look, in our lives, there is a lot of, there are many situations that are like Abel. Things don't go the way they're supposed to. Um, but God has given us these things that we can enjoy, food, spouse, work, and wine. And he's given us this portal back to the Garden of Eden, where before things got flipped upside down. He's saying, if God allows you to enjoy these four things, then take joy in them. And also, this is, we'll talk about this next week too, live in right relationship with God, right? He says, at the end of the book, he says, this is the whole of humanity, to fear God and keep his commandments. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a book about things being turned upside down, things being like Abel, but also a a solution to the problem, which is living in right relationship with God, abiding in him, and enjoying the things he gives us if he allows us to enjoy them. Okay? Um, if you guys have any... If anything isn't clear or doesn't make sense, like hopefully it will begin to make sense, but also please text me, call me, email me, get me after church. Like I think this... If we can get a hold of this book, I think it has the potential to really help us make sense of suffering and difficulty in life in a way that honors the Lord. Jeff, do you have some business for us, I think?